Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. How's it going, Lance? Couldn't be better. I got to tell you, it could not be better if I tried. How are you? It'd be criminal. <laughs> well, hey, that's fitting, isn't it? We're uh, we're talking crime here, true crime, in fact. And uh, in this episode, Lance, we speak with we make a new friend. We speak with Doctor Laura Petler of LPA International Forensics Institute. New friend indeed, but someone who's been on our radar for a little while, who we've communicated with in the past, but never really had the opportunity to speak with. Finally, we did. And uh, she's a wonderful person, super smart, super articulate, and officially named one of the most influential women in forensics in the world by the Forensic Science International. It is very cool. And we talked to her about her career and a little bit about the Lover's Lane murders from Oxygen in this episode, but mostly really about her process in untangling crime scenes. And we're going to do this in two parts for the podcast because it cut sort of in half really nicely. And if you enjoy this conversation that we had with Dr. Petler, she gets into it in a lot more depth in her webinars, which you can find at LPAIFI right there on the homepage. You can see the offer that she has for 12 months for 12 courses, and she again, is super articulate in her work as she breaks down all things crime. Okay, thanks a lot for listening, everybody. Follow the links in the show notes if you are interested in her webinars, which they are very cool, very kind of CrimeCon-esque. So check them out. Thanks a lot for listening. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Laura Petler. How are you today? I am doing great. Thank you both for having me. It's nice to be here. It's so nice to have you. We've been um, talking over the past few weeks and trying to put something together where you can join us on the show. The thing is, is that you have an, uh, uh, such a wide range of expertise. We don't know. We didn't know where we could like hone down and and really focus on a certain topic. So it might feel like we're meandering a bit today, but if nothing else, Tim and I meander with the best <laughs> of them. So no uh, problem. We appreciate you uh, uh, jumping aboard this um, this wandering ship. Um, but uh, I just I just wanted to get ready for this, and I opened up your website, LauraPetler dot com, and right there on the front it says named one of the most influential women in forensics in the world. Uh, just a congrats on that. Thank you. How does that feel? You know, um, it was a tremendous honor to be named one of the most influential women in forensics in 2019. Um, the article came out in Elsevier Journal. Uh, I think it's Forensic Science International uh, Synergy or something like that. But, you know, my name was included with several other female inventors and methodologists and other people who have contributed to the international stage of criminal justice in some way, whether it was um, in genealogy or crime scene or some other type of forensic science. So to be recognized for the invention of the kaleidoscope system and to be recognized for the invention of the murder room and a victim-centered death investigation methodology that it's, that's both scientific and flexible, which, you know, are kind of uh, two words you can't put together in science. Uh, you know, it was a it was a huge honor. I had no idea it was coming until I was emailed the article and said, you know, they said, congratulations. I had I had no idea. 
Wow, very good. Well, tell us what it is that you do. So as a forensic criminologist, my job is to um, study certain types of evidence. So there's all kinds of different forensic criminologists. You can, you can specialize in anything that you want to. In my particular case, I specialize in, uh, in homicide and death investigation. So for me, what that means is that I study the physical evidence and then I study the behavioral evidence. And then I study the sociological evidence. And then I marry all that together. I put that together in, in, in a, an assembled, like a mosaic so that, Law enforcement and attorneys and other stakeholders, families that are looking for answers and other people that are involved in death case proceedings can have a full picture of the totality of evidence because death investigation is a scientific multidisciplinary process. It is not a myopic process. So to take one pixel of one piece of evidence and run with that is very myopic. It can result in wrongful conviction in people that have been prosecuted where they should never have been prosecuted, where there was no probable cause. So our our methodology in forensic criminology for me personally is a scientific multidisciplinary process that is victim-centered that results in both answers towards manner of death consistency with forensic pathologists for cause of death. And in my particular case, in staged cases, whether, whether scenes are staged or normal. So that's, that's basically, that's in a nutshell. Yeah. Good, good stuff. A lot to unpack there. uh, But before we start digging into specifics, um, you have a bow and arrow behind you and horses in pictures. Um, So I'm wondering with all of your other interests that you clearly have, um, how did you get involved in this? Because this seems uh, I feel like when you relax, it's like the furthest away from what you do professionally. Yes, um, it is. It is. So how did you so get you're into asking this? me what, getting into homicide or getting into all the stuff that's behind me? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was trying to I was trying to shoehorn um, the question of how did you get into homicide when you have a wide spectrum of interests, including shooting things with arrows? I, I enjoy mounted archery. I like shooting ancient recurve bows like Mongolian and Scythian bows from horseback. Um it's pretty exhilarating, to be honest with you guys. Wait, when so, the horse is moving? Yes, when the horse is moving. What do you hold on to? <laughs> Nothing. The bow. <laughs> I, I'm just standing in the saddle, running and shooting at stuff. Sometimes I hit it, sometimes I don't. I got a new bow. And so the bow that I just got, I had it custom made. And it is tremendously improved my aim guys. Like I cannot tell you <laughs> how much better I have gotten at hitting the, the targets where I'm supposed to be hitting them on a, on a running horse, you know? So yes. Yeah, so homicide. So, um, th- I think Tim, Tim has some issues here before we <laughs> look at Tim's <laughs> face. Well, I just can't see how that's any more exciting than curling up uh, on a couch with a good book. <laughs> oh yeah. I can't either. Um, no, I don't really get to read a lot for pleasure. I, I'm, if I'm reading something, it's usually some kind of a journal article. It's some kind of new research. It's a case file. It's something that I have to read. I don't get to, I don't have time really to read for pleasure. You know, plus I do other things, you know, like I, I do a lot of writing and a lot of uh, 
a fox hunt and plus I do mounted archery. So I'm, I'm busy outside. I like to be outside all the time. Uh, okay. Yeah. The question was, <laughs> how did you get involved in what you do? Okay. So when I was a little girl, I lived in a county called Beaver County, Pennsylvania. It's north of Allegheny County, which is where Pittsburgh is. And above Beaver County is Butler County. And when I was young, there was a little girl named Sherry Mahan and her name is spelled C-H-E-R-I-E. And her last name is M-A-H-O-N or it's, it may be A-N. Um, but she was on the school bus going home from school and, and I was school age as well. It is said that she got off the bus at the end of her driveway, and then she had a short walk, several hundred yards, maybe 100 yards, 200 yards, something very short, though. It wasn't a long distance from the road where the bus would drop her off up to her home. And this particular day, they noted that there was a blue van following the bus, driving behind the bus, and it had this mountain scene painted on the side of the of the van and it was literally like a snow-capped type mountain and it had a skier painted on top of the mountain and it was like the skier was like skiing down the mountain and sherry never made it to her home she has never been seen again she has never been heard from again she was like nine years old and i was 11 i think and I could not believe it because in the, in the town that I grew up in, it was pretty, pretty sheltered, pretty much of a bubble. Um, and that case really affected me as a young kid. And I started looking for that van. And then every day after school, when we would all be walking the eight blocks from the elementary school back to um, our homes that were kind of on this one piece of the neighborhood. I was always the one watching the road where I was watching for these blue vans, constantly watching for this van as the other kids would walk. Um, and then like, you know, like a dumb kid, this is hilarious. Like if I saw a blue van, I would scream at them all blue van hit the deck. And then we would all jump into these yards of grass. Like here's a bunch of like little kids and we're all laying in the grass on the way home from school because I would like sound the alarm, you know, that there was this blue van up and down the road. Now they didn't have skiers on them, but any blue van at all that I saw, I was just scrutinizing these vans. And, um, I, I have never stopped looking for that van and I've never stopped thinking about her. And she, I have a picture of her beside my computer monitor in my office at work. I'm broadcasting from my farm today, but I have a picture of her mounted right beside my computer screen because what I do can be very, very dark on a daily basis. It's literally going in and, and what I call fighting the darkness. And um, sometimes over the past 20 years of doing this, I've wanted to quit. I've wanted to walk away. I've wanted to, um, just ride my horse, you know, just do whatever else except, you know, fight this darkness and, and, and try to leave the world better than I found it. And then I looked at her and 
sit back down and get back to work. Um, and then several years after she went missing, I had an acquaintance from high school named Jennifer Diamond, and she was about a year or two older than me and had graduated from our high school. She had a boyfriend that she had been with for a long period of time, and he pulled up to the gas station where she was getting gas one morning and shot her in the head, and killed her. And I went to her funeral and the mortician had done a good job putting makeup and things over the, the gunshot wound to her head. But it was so shocking to me that I can still see the image of the gunshot wound to her head. The little, the very small bruise is what it looked like. And it was the first time I had ever seen a gunshot wound on a human body before. And, um, I thought, you know what, I want to, I want, I want to rehabilitate homicide offenders. So when I graduated from high school, I went to the community college first and started along those lines of probably becoming a medical doctor is what I thought I would do at first. And and so I was like, just doing core classes and stuff because I, I didn't do well in high school at all. And so I had to uh, work really hard in college to like pull myself together and, and her death and Sherry's abduction just propelled me toward homicide in general. And then, um, I just started getting more into the psychology of it and realized very quickly that I was not going to rehabilitate homicide offenders and that I was going to do something else in the field. And so I went into psychology at first created like a 25 year plan from when I was about 18 to literally now, and said, I'm going to start out studying normal behavior. And then I'm going to study abnormal behavior. And then I'm going to study criminal behavior. And then I'm going to see what I see where I go from there. And so literally that's how I got started in it. It was two cases in my own personal life that propelled me toward a career in this particular field. Wow. And that first one was, uh, you said her name was Sherry Mahone. It was Ma- Sherry Mahan. Yeah. Mahan. I'm not exactly sure how they pronounce her name. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's C H E R I E and then M A H A N, I believe is the spelling of her last name. Um, I've heard people over the years pronounce her name differently. Um, so I'm not exactly sure how her family in particular pronounces her name. Um, but she has never been found. And it's a case that, you know, I've thought about investigating myself several times to see if the Pennsylvania state police would, uh, allow me to, to read the file and the file is massive. It's literally numerous file cabinets worth of material. So it's thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. Um, every once in a while, LPA gets a tip in the Mahan case. And, you know, we haven't had anything viable come in, but people do give tips to LPA. And of course, if there's anything, you know, that's actually can, you know, valid and reliable, we encourage that person to turn them over to law enforcement, of course. But I work very well with the agencies in Pennsylvania, including the state police. So uh, it may be one day that I, that I ask to see if they would be interested in allowing me to to work with them on the case. That is really cool. Wow. Well, that is quite an origin story. Um, yeah, it's true. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can see uh, how you were kind of led here almost uh, naturally. I guess on a day-to-day basis, what do you do? Maybe that's tough to answer um, because it, maybe it changes every day, but I, give, give me a good indication of what happens on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, LPA is very different now because we're all working remotely. So LPA headquarters is still located here in Monroe, North Carolina. Um, we, until COVID had a very, very large 3000 square foot headquarters space downtown in an office building where we had, uh, a very large training room and also a, a huge murder room. We also had a small murder room. And then we had the Kaleidoscope Manufacturing Center in there. We had several conference rooms. There were eight experts' offices located in there. Field Operations was located in that building, the headquarters of Field Operations. But we are nationwide. Our our operatives are nationwide. And um, so on a day-to-day basis then was very different than now. Now, uh, working from the farm due to COVID, I still do the same type of work. So prior to COVID, my work was pretty much split between true crime television with Dr. Oz and with oxygen shows and other shows on other networks and then casework. So it's about 50% television and 50% casework on literal cases that LPA is retained on. Now that COVID has been, you know, pretty much the dominant thing in the past year and a half, the television work I'm not doing very much of at this time. I didn't go back to Oz this season to New York. Um, I haven't gone anywhere. I've stayed, I've stayed put and for safety reasons like everyone else. And so now I would say daily, a day for me is, um, is usually one or two different cases per day. I might start off like this morning, I was working a case from Mississippi and it's, it is a death case. And um, we are looking into the death of the decedent because it was reported to LPA that it was suspicious. And so we don't make any kind of judgment based on what's told to us. We immediately you know, request records from agencies and work with people to determine whether or not LPA is going to move forward in one way or the other. And then, you know, I, I do a lot of interviews like this and appear on lots of different types of shows. So sometimes within the scope of my days that, you know, there's a break from casework and I get the pleasure of, of joining podcasts and, and places, you know, going places like this virtually, mostly it's casework. And I usually work one or two cases a day. LPA normally pre-COVID had about 25 cases at a time that we had open, but we also have a round table of experts from crime scene to courtroom. So it's not just me working cases. It's a whole team of experts from crime scene investigators to death investigators, to pathologists, to anthropologists, um, DNA experts, digital forensics, forensic criminologists like myself, psych autopsy with forensic criminologists, I'm sorry, psychologists, and our team of prosecutors developing prosecutorial theory in the murder room on the probable cause wall. So like it's normally just death cases all day long, except when in a COVID world, it's, it's slightly different. But for me, it's just the television piece has been cut back. 
the casework. We don't hold, we are, we don't have 25 cases open because a lot of the cases are in progress on hold due to the court systems being closed. So everything that, you know, is like pending trial for wrongful death or wrongful conviction or even pending murder cases with law enforcement agencies, all that is on hold. So we don't have as many active cases that we're actively working in the field. I don't have as many operatives actively working on death cases nationwide at this time. It's just a a period of, um, it's just a different world for us right now. And you've mentioned... uh three things that stood out you you said um your your work at lpa and the building and the kaleidoscope manufacturing room and the murder rooms those are very fascinating terms that you've used um what is lpa aside from where all of the superheroes gather to solve crime uh lpa is laura petler and associates and we're a death investigations private investigation firm um been around since 2005 and we have experts from all over the country that are, are part of our roundtable. The roundtable has 16 seats that are part of each discipline of a multidisciplinary victim-centered scientific approach to death investigation in a method that I built called the murder room, which is a six-stage method starting from what we call knowledge all the way up through evaluations. So when a case comes into LPA, It's not haphazardly investigated. It's not haphazardly reviewed. It goes through a literal methodological system because I believe that our system determines our outcome. And so we have a system that every single case goes through the exact same thing every time. That creates reliability of methods, whether the method is valid and reliable, whether it's working or whether it's not working. So the the murder room has about a 98% solvability rate. Clearance does not depend on LPA. Clearance rates are solely dependent on the law enforcement agency that's investigating the case that's in jurisdiction. So even if LPA solves a case and hands the case back to a law enforcement agency solved, that doesn't mean that a law enforcement agency may necessarily work with the DA's office in that case to make an arrest. There may be lots of reasons why they do not arrest at that time. Um, And of course, some cases that go through the murder room, they're found not to be murder at all. They're accidents, they're suicides. Um, Sometimes they're undetermined. If we can't come to a scientific answer for the client, we render them undetermined. We also determine whether the scenes are staged or normal. And in stage four, uh, which is called analysis, We do something called research-based forensic victimology, and that's the foundation of our process. And then we do a, what's called a crime scene analysis, and then a laboratory report analysis, wound pattern analysis, suspectology or subjectology, if there's no subject, suspect. And then we also do a ton of statement analysis on so many different levels um, of both witness statements that are critical. And then anything guys that is considered to be white noise, we sequester on one wall of the murder room. So one wall is dedicated to, it says white noise at the top and anything that is extraneous, it is muddying the waters, anything that is confusing the issue, anything that is a one pixel thing instead of a totality kind of a thing, 
all of that and, and, and numerous witnesses usually get sequestered onto this wall. Uh, and then the, of course, the other wall is the probable cause wall at the beginning of the process of the murder room. There's nothing on the probable cause wall in cases where it'll be suicide or accident. That wall remains blank at the end as well. But for cases where it's murder on the probable cause wall of the murder room, you might have 25 things. Everything in the murder room is color coded. So in the end of stage four, that's where the kaleidoscope system comes in. The kaleidoscope system is in, we call it the most versatile and comprehensive crime scene reconstruction system in the world. It simultaneously recreates uh, bullet paths through space and, and wound tracks through bodies and objects using glowing dowel rods and lasers. We invented the technology in 2008 because I was out on a scene. The victim's name was Timothy White. We were there for 14 hours. He was shot in the head. He was shot twice in the back of the leg. And the district attorney said, your reconstruction is going to determine whether or not this is a second degree murder case or a first degree murder case and a potential possible death penalty case. And so what we were able to find was that the shooter shot Timothy White first to the head. He fell. He was no longer a threat. He was face down on the ground, literally completely not any kind of a threat. The shooter pulled his vehicle up, aimed back out the window of his driver's side and shot Timothy White twice in the back of the leg. That turned that case from a second degree murder case to a first degree potential death penalty case in North Carolina. So reconstruction is very critical. On that crime scene, I was having to deal with a bunch of ricochets. And so the bullet came from the barrel of the firearm through the head of the victim, exited the head of the victim, hit the roof of a, of a Honda Civic, bounced off the roof of the Honda Civic, hit the wall of the post office, then broke into two pieces, hit another wall of the post office, and then went wherever it went. And so when you're dealing with multiple, what we call reference points or defects in shooting reconstruction, it was like, why are we not using hollow dowel rods that we shoot a laser through instead of using like a, a solid dowel rod where we're having to attach a laser to the end of it or use string? That's like droopy. And so I was working with two detectives that came up with this technology with me. And I said, this will be, let me declare it right now. This is the last time we are ever working a crime scene and building a reconstruction like this without shooting lasers through something hollow. The very first thing I ever shot a laser through was a McDonald's straw. Because I had that in the car. Then I started shooting them through arrow shafts, arrow shafts, right? Because I had arrow shafts. So I started shooting them through the carbon hollow arrow shafts. And then we kept testing things, kept testing things, and eventually came to these glowing dowel rods. So if you Google tubular dowel crime scene reconstruction, you'll find pictures of Vic, who is our forensic mannequin, and he has all these glowing dowel rods sticking out of him. That's the, that's the kaleidoscope system. And then we expanded it in 2013 to include 
shooting reconstruction and blood stain reconstruction so that we can do that simultaneously now all with lasers getting rid of all the droopy strings all the solid apparatus that that confuse the issue and can skew the trajectories and stuff so you know going going kaleido going laser was just a phenomenal time saver for us the the kits are sold by 11 international forensic company distributors and we sell it in more than 30 countries well that is impressive um Thank do you. you find that the path so you're you're saying that you were dealing with a lot of ricochets do you find that the path of the laser is pretty consistent with the path of a bullet and does the laser bounce in the same way that a bullet would bounce the laser doesn't have a parabolic arc any projectile traveling through air is going to have some level of parabolic arc depending on the caliber depending on the type of firearm depending depending on the type of ammunition um and then the distance from where it is leaving the barrel of the firearm traveling through the air anything that is 20 yards or Shorter, we consider here at LPA what we call short distance reconstruction. Those are going to be more accurate because there's less parabolic arc. So our lasers are going to be straighter and and kind of go with the 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 path of the bullet through space and through air a little bit better. Anything that's outside 20 yards like that, you know, we consider that long distance. We've had tremendous success long distance wise, but there's a larger margin of error. There can be, and, and it's important for me to mention that crime scene reconstruction at best, at, at the very best is only one little tiny little snapshot of what the event could have been like, because, you know, none of us were witnesses to it. And so we cannot ever embark on a crime scene reconstruction, like a shooting reconstruction like that and, and expect the lasers to match the trajectory of the bullets, considering that it's a, it's a div different, the laws of physics are different for uh, the laser beam versus a projectile. So it's really important for us to make sure that, you know, that listeners know that, that crime scene reconstruction and what you see on television is not what we do in the courtroom. One of the cases I worked on was the very first case in North Carolina to use lasers in the courtroom to demonstrate shooting reconstruction. And while it is admissible in court and while it is a, a valid and reliable practice, you have to recognize its limitations as well. So, you know, it's important to understand that it, it does us a great job, but then it also has limitations that we can't make it, you know, the totality of everything. It doesn't tell us who either. It only tells us how, and it tells us what. So in another case, R Robinson that I did years and years ago, the, tra the trajectory was so high. It was so, so high. And it was in this old train depot and the projectile went through the victim, exited the victim went through a box, I mean, a big box of tampons, exited the box, box of tampons. Like it was like a shipping box with boxes, small boxes of tampons. So it's cotton, it's cotton. So it goes through the cotton, exits the cotton, and then goes through a box of tobacco, exits the tobacco, and ends up in an ashtray on, 
on like an adjacent table. It was amazing. So I reconstruct this thing and I get like up to like six, four. And I say to the detective, Hey, Jody, stand there and point your firearm on this line, on this trajectory for me. So he does. And I'm like, how tall are you? And he said, I'm six, four. And I said, the shooter's taller than you. And he said, how do you know? And I said, because this blood spatter can't be here and this can't be here. You know, so I explained it, which is very long winded. And they were like, you're saying that the shooter is taller than six, four. I'm like, yes, taller than you, because he has to be farther away from you. Or if he was as close as you are, the victim would have stippling from the firearm and would have other defects that we would know that the victim was that the shooter was closer to the victim shooters farther away from the victim. We don't have those artifacts on the victim. Three weeks later, they arrested William Robinson and he was six, nine. Very cool. Wow. Yeah. I feel like I'm learning a lot from you already. Um, and we're, <laughs> well, we're only a half an hour in and, and I've only been to one of your webinars so far. Um, but can you explain a little bit about your webinars? Because they are incredibly interesting. Thank you. Um, the webinars, we started the, the, the 2021 LPA International Forensics Institute webinar series. And I was basically first on the chopping block. We are getting ready to launch a second instructor in the webinar series from Quantico. His name is Frank Marsh. He is absolutely phenomenal. And you guys aren't going to want to miss his webinars on toxic people and behavior and psychopathy and all kinds of things that he teaches at Quantico. My webinars are, there's 20 of them. I just finished the, we did the one where we kind of kicked everything off. And then last week I did one called Introduction to Petler Staging Taxonomy. And the staging taxonomy is new. So I wanted to introduce it to the world. Basically, it's, it's still in a preliminary conceptual model, but it is the first staging taxonomy in, in the world. So we are really excited about it at LPA because instead of talking about crime scene staging, guys, LPA is suggesting and moving away from that term and calling it staging because now we have taken staging and divided it into three categories, linguistic staging, visual staging, and nonverbal staging. And so in the scope of homicide investigation, uh, you can take a case like the Jody Arias case of which I did her behavior and plugged it into the taxonomy to illustrate how well it works. And of all the points of the taxonomy, she did not hit on two points out of probably 30. So it was amazing. The, the series started off with staging and then in April, it's going to move to the murder room. So the first webinar of every month from now until December will be a part of the murder room, or I'm going to get in and I'm going to explain stage one really, 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 really well. And every single thing we do in stage one and then stage two and stage three, and then stage four is going to take multiple months to go through. And then the second webinar of every month for me is going to be crime scene related. So one month I'm going to do shooting. So next week I'm doing the shooting of Travis Alexander. So I'm taking apart just the shooting piece of his death, where, as we know, Jody Arias inflicted numerous types and layers of injury on that victim, uh, Travis Alexander. So 
so we want to take apart just the shooting and analyze how do you document a, a case like this? How do you document the shooting? How do you use the bloodstain evidence to support your shooting reconstruction and things like that? So we're going to start with shooting here in March. And then next month um, will be bloodstain. And so then I'm going to alternate between shooting and bloodstain for the rest of the year, second webinar of every month. So for me, the first webinar of, of my series every month is going to be on forensic criminology, which includes forensic science, behavioral analysis, and sociological evidence. And the second webinar of every month for me is going to be crime scene related and crime scene reconstruction related specifically. And we'll take different cases and reconstruct the shootings. I'll show you how I would do it and what we need to do it. Or we might pick a case where um, we can't do it because we don't have enough information or enough documentation or evidence and, and show you why certain cases aren't reconstructable and why we shouldn't ethically reconstruct them. So I think that's just as important as the ones that we can show that we can reconstruct. So that's kind of the nutshell of my web series. Uh, I'm sorry, my webinar series. And then you can go to the web, web series through our school, the LPAIFI.com. That stands for the, the Laura Petler Associates. International Forensics Institute, which is a school of forensic criminology. It's all online now. We did have a lot of ground courses. Of course, we still have the format for ground courses, but we're not offering any ground courses right now. We're only doing webinars. And then there's like 17 classes in the school. If you're interested, you can take. So for example, there's nowhere else you can take uh, investigating staged suicides by firearm class. That's a really, really important class. It's, in, it's in important to, to take an introduction to suicidology because we have so many cases that are confused for suicides when they're actually homicides, things like that. So we have a lot of unique courses for people like yourselves to take to that maybe you, know, you guys are interested in them because you're interviewing people about cases and crime. You know, they're helpful to you from that from that standpoint, you're welcome in the webinars any any time. Thank you. Um, the the one that we did attend was so. Uh, I'm glad that you gave all the information on where people can find uh, how to how to attend your courses. Um, the one that that we attended, it was. I was so blown away by how articulate you were and and how oh. you continue to be. Um, <laughs> it, it really Peter like Lance. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, it, it was uh, so easy to digest the information where if I felt like I was hearing it from somebody else or reading it in some textbook, I probably would have maybe zoned out a little bit, but um, <laughs> you had everybody engaged just because like it's stuff that I don't really know about. And, and um, you know, if you're reading a paper on it, you know how much research has gone into it and it's a little daunting to oh, approach yeah. something like that. But I, before we move on to specific uh, cases, you mentioned something at the beginning of this by saying, uh, crime scenes that ethically couldn't be reconstructed or mm -hmm. or you couldn't eth ethically do that i was curious right. about that what what does that mean what that means is that in order to scientifically reconstruct or recreate or reconstruct is the right word so let me back up and explain something because this is i'm sure something listeners are not familiar with and i might have mentioned this in the webinar there are three types of quote unquote crime scene reconstruction when we're talking about reconstruction. The first kind is scientific and that is reconstruction that requires the entire case file. 
that requires all of the documentation, all of the measurements from the scene. So like, if you can imagine you're sitting in your, your room to where you are right now, and there's a table behind you and the computer monitor, and there's a height of that table. There is a width of the table. There is both quantitative things like the static things like the height and the width and the, and what it's made out of. Then there's also the qualitative aspects of the table. So the table is hard. It looks like it may be wood. It's also a blonde wood. It could be pine or it could be birch, you know, like it, all that has to be identified. And then the measurement of your window behind your, your head. So like if you're dead right there in your chair, right? So say we're reconstructing you, you're shot and killed right there in your seat. We have to have the measurements of everything around you. So the walls, the windows, how far the windows are away from each other, the height of your microphone, your body measurements, the length of your arms, the length of your torso, the, the height of your neck, that all of these different things play a role into our reconstruction. And if we don't have all of that information, it becomes an ethical issue that we are trying to do something scientific that we do not have the material to do. So it becomes an ethical issue for us where we can't stand behind it because there's missing pieces. If you're not a reconstructionist, but you are an investigator, it's sometimes not on your radar. You know what? This is going to be a suspicious death. It looks like a suicide, but it's going to end up a homicide. We better measure everything in this room. And the rule of thumb is measure everything and then measure everything again, and then measure everything that you didn't think that you should measure. And, and that's kind of the way it goes. Now there are like the Leica 360 and all these different things that take millions of measurements in rooms like this. So that's been very, very helpful to us in the, in the crime scene reconstruction world. Um, but for ethical reasons, we decline sometimes to reconstruct shootings or bloodstain evidence because we don't have proper documentation. The photos aren't good. There are missing measurements and ethically we cannot scientifically um, get behind something like that. Wow. Super interesting. I think what I'm going to do is um, I'll take measurements of everything around me. That way, <laughs> okay. in case it actually happens, it'll save you a lot of time. And Yeah. I got your back. I, yeah. I got you. <laughs> yeah. You'd be like, what happened? Yeah. Oh, look, he's so, so cool of him to leave measurements of everything. Yeah. 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 You wouldn't believe what I have left, you know, like DNA and all kinds of stuff for myself, you know, because obviously I, I have a very um, interesting job that involves, um, you know, bad guys. And so, um, you know, it, it, it increases my risk of becoming a victim of violent crime. So, yeah, so it's good to leave those kinds of things to, to cut to the chase. <laughs> Whatever I can do to help. Oh, good. All right. <laughs>